Welcome back. I'm Brian, and this is my Bible study podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. So we've been walking through the 12 books of the Minor Prophets, and we've completed four so far, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. Today I just want to take a short episode and put a bow on the last three. Joel, Amos, and Obadiah all pull on some of the same threads. When I was covering the Minor Prophets in my small group, I actually grouped all three of them together initially so that we could do like a word association, family feud type game with it. All three books revolve around strong themes such as God judging both his people, the Israelites, and all other nations. God holding all people accountable to key concepts like justice and righteousness. And then the theme of the day of the Lord. Today I want to look more at these thematic elements, so we'll talk more about the concept of God's inescapable judgment. We'll talk about the Hebrew words for justice and righteousness, mishpat and sedekah. Then we'll talk about the day of the Lord, which is described both as a past day of covenant judgment and a coming day of universal judgment. We've talked about each of these throughout the three individual books, but stitching them together a little bit can help us see the Bible as one interwoven tapestry. One story unveiling God's plan for redemption through the blood of one man, a united scripture pointing toward Jesus. On a random tangent, before I dive into those thematic elements, I want to point out something that I don't think I've explicitly called out in these books yet, and that's the term Zion, which is used in multiple ways throughout these three books, and in other biblical books too, but we're focusing on these three right now. At times, it's definitely a reference to the worldly Jerusalem of the time, like in Joel 2.1, which says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of Yahweh comes, for it is close at hand. Or in Joel 2.15, which says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Or in Amos 6.1, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who are secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel come. At other times, though, there are these references to Zion as this city at the coming day of the Lord, sometimes even references to this place as potentially the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven in future glory. Joel 2.32 says, It will happen that whoever will call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, and among the remnant, those whom Yahweh calls. Or Joel 3.17, So you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem will be holy, and no strangers will pass through her anymore. It's kind of a tangent, but I did want to call it out, because when you read about the city of Zion through these prophets, sometimes it can get confusing, and you don't have a good reference for which Zion is talking about. So just be aware. Even though these three books might occur in different places, at different times, directed at different groups, what's happening throughout all three still carries a common thread. In all three, we see sin running rampant among the people. In all three, we see a perversion of justice through the people. 
then we see the ultimate standard of justice and righteousness in God. We see the justice and righteousness of God as the absolute truth, the gold standard, if you will. Then we see man's enactment of his own version of justice and righteousness as this perversion of that truth. And we find that man's version is a cheap knockoff. On a scale, man's version would be found wanting. So, what's coming? Well, judgment is coming. The judgment of God is pronounced in each of these books. God judges the Israelites for their sinfulness and their covenant rebellion. Amos 3.13 and the beginning of verse 14 say, Listen and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord Yahweh, the God of armies. For in the day that I visit the transgressions of Israel on him. God judges the nations for their sinfulness and their treatment of the Israelites also. Joel 3.2 says, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will execute judgment on them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have divided my land. And Obadiah 16, which says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so will all the nations drink continually. Yes, they will drink, swallow down, and will be as though they had not been. So we see what's happening and we see what's coming, but these books don't just stop at pronouncements and judgments. They also describe a call and a future restoration. Restoration will come to a remnant, making a path for the Messiah, but God also calls his people to repent and return to him. Joel 1.14 says, Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of Yahweh your God, and cry to Yahweh. Joel 2.12 and 13 says, Yet even now, says Yahweh, turn to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Tear your heart and not your garments, and turn to Yahweh your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and relents from sending calamity. Each of these three books contain messages of judgment and destruction, followed by messages of restoration and hope. Obadiah 17 says, But in Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Amos 9.11 says, In that day I will raise up the tent of David who has fallen, and close up its breaches. And I will raise up its ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Amos 9.14 says, I will bring my people Israel back from captivity, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they will plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. The concept of judgment revolves around the idea of someone having the authority to announce that judgment. If all the people, law enforcement, and all government officials decided to ignore a court's ruling, then that court's judgment is rendered toothless. There has to be recognition in order for there to be acceptance of judgment within our society. When it comes to the judgment of God, however, that doesn't have to be the case. He is the higher authority that can render a verdict and enforce that sentence. God alone has the capability to judge and to punish in the end. His judgment is universal. You can't escape it by running from him. You can't avoid it by clinging to a family birthright. Because he is just, he cannot be bribed or manipulated. Because he is righteous, he cannot render a crooked or tainted verdict. 
and because he is absolute, you cannot request another verdict from a greater authority. There is no appeals process for the judgment of God. All of this happens to roll up into the idea of the day of the Lord, a phrase that shows up in that exact iteration only eight times in these three books. But it's an idea that shows up many, many more times if you include phrases like on that day or in that day. These are all referring to a day of judgment by God on the people. One interesting note that I don't have time to really dive into, but that you should be aware of, is that the day of the Lord is not always referring to one singular future ultimate judgment day upon which all the people of the earth will be presented before the Lord. I mean, yes, that day will be the ultimate great and awesome day of the Lord, but you can make an argument that there are also these other days of the Lord that are also executions of judgment by God upon his people. Short term, we see this with the nations of Israel and Judah, right? Assyria coming in and wiping out the northern kingdom of Israel is described as a short-term day of judgment by Yahweh upon his people. Babylon conquering Judah, destroying Jerusalem, bringing the temple to ruins, and carrying large margins of Israelites into exile is another short-term day of judgment by Yahweh upon his people. Again, I could do an entire series on this nuance, but it sort of goes back to the short-term and long-term fulfillments of prophecy that I talked about during my Intro to Prophetic Literature episode. The bottom line of all three books about the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, is that God engages it, and that it is inescapable, and that its seriousness should not be struggled off, and that justice will be served on it. Joel 2.1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of Yahweh comes, for it is close at hand. Amos 5.18 Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh! Why do you long for the day of Yahweh? It is darkness and not light. Amos 5.20 Won't the day of Yahweh be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it. Obadiah 15 For the day of Yahweh is near all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. The Hebrew word for judgment and justice is mishpat. It deals with the act of deciding a judicial case, of providing a sentence, and of sitting in a seat of authority that allows one to pronounce that judgment. Amos 5.15 starts, Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the courts. Amos 5.24 says, But let justice roll on like rivers, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Van Gemeren also points out that places like Psalm 1.5 seem to play on this civil use as a metaphor for the ultimate destiny of the wicked. Psalm 1.5 says, Therefore the wicked shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The word also conjures up images of the characteristics of God that underline his being just. Micah 3.8 really underlines this definition. But as for me, I am full of power by the Spirit of Yahweh, and of judgment and of might, to declare to Jacob his disobedience, and to Israel his sin. The book of Job also uses this word a lot as it explores the ultimate justice of God. The Hebrew word for righteousness, and that also overlaps with the idea of justice, is sedek or sedekah. This word definitely has a relational aspect to it. It cannot exist in a vacuum. 
it is used to describe legal justice and moral virtue. Amos 5.7 says, You who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Amos 6.12 ends, But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. The book of Proverbs explores this aspect of the word quite often. It is also used as an attribute to describe the righteousness aspect of God. 2 Samuel 22 describes the ways of the Lord as being full of righteousness. And one interesting note is that it is also used to describe the coming Messiah from the line of David. He is described as righteousness and justice. This word helps draw a connection between the Messiah having both a human lineage of the line of David and a divine lineage, the Son of God who embodies the divine standard of righteousness and justice. And so, lastly, this word is used to describe being in a justified state of being declared righteous and being a recipient of salvation, as in what we receive upon turning toward God and placing our faith in Jesus, the Messiah. So the end of this episode is going to focus more on application questions for my listeners to ponder. I'm not going to answer them. I'm going to leave them open and encourage you to meditate on them at some point in the week. What are some ways that our society twists or perverts justice and righteousness? What are some ways that we also fall into that boat of either perverting justice ourselves or of turning a blind eye to the perversion of justice by others? So the church at Brook Hills has a small group guide to some of their lessons, and it offers a couple questions here about this and about sin in our lives. Two questions that the guide asks are, What habits do we have in our own lives that help us become desensitized to sin? And the second is, what are some sins that we allow in our lives because we do not see them as big sins, that we don't see them as like these major sins, so we kind of sweep them under the rug and don't worry about them? All right, so you and I, we can answer those questions regardless of our faith, right? Like both Christians and non-Christians can ponder and point out ways that we pervert justice that we desensitize ourselves to sins, and that we remain ignorant to the sins in our own lives. But if you are a Christian, the questions don't end there. The next step for Christians becomes, how does Jesus step into our understanding of justice and righteousness? How does the perfect life of Jesus display perfect righteousness and a perfect obedience to God? Why is that important to our faith? If you believe in Jesus, how does Jesus receiving the punishment of death that we should have received transform how you think about your coming judgment? How does what Jesus accomplished on the cross do to offer us restoration? And how does that completed work provide you unending hope for the coming day of the Lord? How is that hope of Jesus' completed work different than the ancient Israelites' hope in themselves and in their own works? And how can you apply that to your worship? Thanks for listening. Hopefully you found this episode helpful in revisiting some of the thematic elements from the past few Minor Prophet books. I think we're going to be returning to the Minor Prophets just after Christmas, picking up with the book of Jonah, my favorite and least favorite Minor Prophet book at the same time. For the next two weeks or so, though, I'm going to try to tackle a couple one-off episodes, maybe on the names of Jesus, 
the birth of Jesus, the idea of Advent and what that actually is, and I might try to sneak in a study of Psalm 51, which is a great example of what biblical repentance and confession looks like. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.